back on the high motor podcast the midweek episode of the high motor podcast thanks for checking out the show if you're a first timer check out the show on twitter at high motor pod on instagram at high motor pod and you've obviously found it somehow but it's also available on apple Podcasts, overcast stitcher spotify and everywhere else sitting here uh, browsing the athlon sports college football preview magazine always a big day in the dowdy household when this beauty lands in the mailbox and I was on the Big Ten section here uh, before I hopped on record, looking over Nebraska's schedule again. I know this one by heart because the Huskers get a fair amount of of airtime, uh, we'll call it, on the High Motor Podcast. But another glance, and it's kind of an important reminder of how we evaluate college football teams year to year, programs year to year, coaches year to year. I didn't notice, I missed this, uh, last year in the magazine notes that Nebraska AD Bill Moose said that the reasonable expectation for Scott Frost's third team, so he said this before the second team last year, but a reasonable expectations for 2020 would be six wins in a bowl game. I didn't know that Bill Moose said that. I wonder if he actually believed that or if he was just tempering expectations and then in the final analysis section of this is breakdown again Athlon Sports Magazine it says that uh, from whomever their their local Nebraska writer is here saying that six wins is a reasonable expectation their own projections have them at seven and five for the regular season and this is something I think we can kind of apply to all its college football because the schedules are so wildly imbalanced with very few scheduling rules outside of the, the minimum conference games and I know that we talk about scheduling a ton, but more so for playoff teams. It doesn't seem like we talk about scheduling as much for those second, third, fourth-tier teams across college football. And looking at Nebraska specifically, if they're about the same as they were last year or marginally better, which seems fair at this point, where are the wins for them? You win seven games with this schedule after spending the last year doubting Scott Frost, I might buy back in. Because non-conference, and again, let's say that Nebraska is about the same or marginally better than last year as a team, which seems realistic. Where are the non-conference wins? Central Michigan, South Dakota State, Cincinnati? Because even going back to last year, Nebraska does not beat any of those three teams last year as the 2019 Huskers. They don't beat 2019 Central Michigan. They don't beat 2019 South Dakota State. They don't beat 2019 Cincinnati. None of them. And I think that they'll be better, those three teams, or at least in the same neighborhood of quality as last year. Looking at South Dakota State, we talked about this a couple weeks ago with Sam Herter, FCS writer. South Dakota State is a terrifying game for Nebraska in Week 3. There's a lot of talk of why why Oregon scheduled North Dakota State in Week 1 at home. Who on the Nebraska side is sitting there now saying, really glad that South Dakota State's on the schedule? That's got to be a really small group. I'm not sure they even believe that they're excited to have South Dakota State on the schedule. There's not anything to gain with that game. Even those that know that South Dakota State is good, that doesn't matter. So you have wins against, let's say, Northwestern Illinois Rutgers, and who else? At Ohio State, nope. Penn State, no. Not winning at Iowa. At Wisconsin, you're not winning that game. 
Maybe at home against Minnesota in the regular season finale. Maybe if the Gophers can't rebuild on that defense after smashing Nebraska last year. But again, even if Nebraska is actually better, they could have a better team, which by year three, you, you damn well better be fielding better teams. Even after he picked up what, what Mike Riley left behind, they could have a better team and still win five games, which would then give Scott Frost 14 total wins through three seasons. They go five and seven. He's fourteen and twenty-two through three seasons at Nebraska, and that's the problem that I'm talking about. That's the perception problem of college football. Even if Nebraska is better, they could win five games, giving Scott Frost four wins, five wins, and five wins in his first three years. There aren't many jobs that you can walk into with the resources that Nebraska has, and yeah, they were in bad shape when Mike Riley left, but still going four, five, and five in first three years, unless you're taking over Kansas. You should not be winning four, five, and five games in three seasons, even though they might be better this year. That's the massive, massive perception problem that we all have in college football, and it can come across as an excuse, and that's literally what it is. Why didn't X team hit eight wins instead of the six that you had? Here's why. Now I think you ask yourself, are those fair excuses? Can you say, yeah, well, we had three DBs go down last week, in the case of Maryland a couple of years ago, you lose your top two, three quarterbacks early in the season. On the flip side, I think this is what makes college football so great. It's those different schedules, the different scenarios, the roster turnover, getting new players in all the time, rebuilding all of that. But it's also what makes college football so, so hard to evaluate fairly with this perception problem because some decisions are driven by perception. It's the expectation, the perception that can drive coaching changes. Along those lines, actually, I was, I was going over the worst firings in college football over the last 20 years, the worst firings since 2000. And it's really easy to look in hindsight and say, you blew it with this firing, but there's also three different periods of evaluation, right? So one, when the coach is fired, at that moment of the firing, are we saying, yeah, that was the right call? Number two, maybe the right call at that time, but it depends on who you're going to hire. We can sit here and say, yeah, it's a fine call, but who are you going to go out and get? And third, this is the wrong call, and the chances of you getting somebody better are slim to none. That's a conversation we have so many times on this podcast. Yeah, we can fire anybody we want, but who are you going out and hiring? Nebraska ditches Frank Solich after the 2003 season. They go 9-3 and in the regular season. With that, you're ditching a guy who won 33 games in his first seasons, first three seasons, Go seven and seven in year four, and then nine and three in year five, and you're firing him to hire Bill Callahan. Clearly, in hindsight, that's the wrong move to hire to fire Solich, and another worse disastrous move to hire a guy in Bill Callahan with almost no college experience. And then, really, after that Solich move, that's when Nebraska went from, I mean, what thirty to thirty-five years of a juggernaut, or at least nationally relevant, to an afterthought. And yes, they had the nine and ten win seasons under Bo Pelini, but again, perception and expectation. Those were teams that were ranked highly in the AP poll preseason or early in the season to then fall into that 20 range, 24 range, unranked. I mean, that's almost entirely hype in the preseason and early season for a team who falters by the end of the season for the last 15, 16 years. Looking at it, since they fired Solich 2004 onwards, so those 16 years that we're talking here, they finished worse in the AP Top 25 eight times after a preseason ranking. They finished better once. Eight times they finished worse, once they finished better. 
and the other seasons they weren't ranked in the preseason poll. And I get that the AP Top 25 is a crapshoot, and most people aren't watching that many teams anyways, but still, that's the perception problem. And it's still happening. We saw that last year. Going into last year, Big uh, Big Ten West contenders, maybe they'll get to 8, 9, 10 wins in year two under Scott Frost. I mean, think of how dramatically the conversation has shifted from one year ago to now on Nebraska football. That gets us to today's topic, another program that's similarly failed to meet lofty expectations, had a huge perception problem for the better part of a decade now. We're going to talk Texas football on the show today and also widen the lens to some Big 12 stuff as well with Patrick Kahn, managing editor of USA Today's Longhorns Wire, host of the Lockdown Longhorns podcast and the Third Down Conversion podcast. And Patrick, you released your game-by-game predictions for Texas a couple weeks ago. You have Texas going 11-1. and the only loss not against Oklahoma. You have them beating Oklahoma, but the, instead the, the only loss in the season finale versus Oklahoma State. And a few things I want to talk about with these predictions. First of which, do you simply believe that Texas is that good? Do you really believe Texas is a good 11-win team? They hit 11 wins for the first time since 2009? Or is this more a reflection of the state of the Big 12 and how you see the conference shaping up this season? Obviously, I think it's you know, best case scenario, obviously, uh, when you when you look at the schedule as a whole, uh, starting off against South Florida, not a team that I expect to put up much of a fight. Uh, obviously, the, their big game is going to be in Baton Rouge. It's going to be their biggest test. I just think that they've lost so much that there's going to be a learning curve for them. You know, with with Joe Brady going to the NFL, losing Joe Burrow, all those weapons on offense, on defense. You know, so I felt like. Early on, it was going to be a good thing for Texas. Uh, when, you, when you look at Oklahoma, the big thing is uh, when, when you take a look, they're, they're going to go with Spencer Rattler, most likely. And, you know, he's going to get his first taste of kind of the Cotton Bowl and that Red River rivalry. And I think that there's going to be a learning curve. I know that Lincoln Riley has had good quarterbacks where he brings somebody in and, and they can contribute immediately and, and carry them on. Uh, the big problem, I, they, when you look at it, out of the last five quarterbacks who have made their debut in the in the Cotton Bowl at the Red River rivalry, three of them have lost to Texas. So I was kind of factoring that in. Uh, they're going with the young gun. Texas obviously has the experience factor when you talk about Sam Ellinger and going into his fourth season. Uh, when you look at everything involved, I just think that with the changes that Texas is making, uh, with the new offense of Mike Yurcich, with the new defensive philosophy, I think all those things are, are pointed in the right direction for Texas. And 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 you're right, the Big 12 is down. Uh, obviously, Baylor was one that kind of made some noise last season. Matt Rule gone. So now they're having to bring in a whole new coaching staff and, and Dave Aranda. So you look at them. Obviously, Oklahoma State is loaded with firepower on that offensive side. So I really think it comes down to Oklahoma, Texas and Oklahoma State as far as who's going to play for that Big 12 championship. Let's say that you're spot on with this. Texas goes 11-1, and one, uh, like you said, wins over LSU, Oklahoma at Kansas State among them. That's probably a Big 12 championship appearance 99% of the time, you know, unless tiebreakers land perfectly to keep them out. But we'll say 11-1 and one in the Big 12 championship. There's a strong likelihood that they're playing for a playoff berth in that game. And I know you said best-case scenario, but again, let's say you're spot on here, 11-1. Uh, probably the four seed they're playing for there is seed that Oklahoma has been three times, never really been in any of those three games. The gap between 
them uh, and LSU last year, Alabama a couple years ago, Clemson a few years back. In that 1-4 game, the gap has been significant. Is there any reason to believe that the gap wouldn't be the same or greater uh, if Texas does go 12-1 uh, and and reach the playoff? You know, when Tom Herman is given time to prepare, he has a way of finding, let me just say, he has a, a way of getting his team ready. Whether you talk about the Sugar Bowl a couple years ago, uh, you know, Georgia was viewed as one of those. College playoff contenders they obviously didn't make it to play in the Sugar Bowl, and Texas beats them. And then last year, Utah was a team that was seen as kind of a big, heavy favorite against Texas. Why? Well, they were loaded on defense. They had plenty of weapons on offense. But yet, when Tom Herman's team took the field, they just looked like they were the heavy favorites. They just overmatched Utah. Uh, they find it just seems like. When Tom Herman has time to game plan, he finds a way to win games that maybe they shouldn't. And for whatever reason, when the lights are their brightest, that's when Sam Ellinger really comes to play. Along those lines, that that gap that I'm talking about here, when we talk a lot nationally about the talent gap between Michigan and Ohio State, and even though Texas-Oklahoma hasn't been nearly as one-sided head-to-head as Michigan-Ohio State, you know, it has been at least one-sided in the national picture with what Oklahoma has done nationally. What is the talent gap right now between Texas and Oklahoma? Uh, well, you know, the talent gap, as far as if you look at recruiting rankings, um, you know, if you pay attention to the 24-7s, composite, team rankings, all that, Texas actually has the edge. The problem is they are not taking that talent and making NFL-level talent, you know, the uh, and that and that's the big problem, you know, is getting them in positions to win. And that's been that hasn't just been a problem under Tom Herman. I mean, this this dates back to the end of the uh, Mac Brown era, mm-hmm. you know. So this is something that's been going on for a decade, where where they're getting top talent, but they're just not getting them where they need to be. And when you have a player who like Tunmizo Daly who came out and said, hey, I didn't choose Texas because they don't produce NFL talent. You know, and so that's a problem when you have top players in your own state that won't go there because of that. Who ultimately deserves, I know you said it goes all the way back to Mac Brown. Is this a, a coach-by-coach coach thing where the blame ultimately lies with Tom Herman and himself and the staff that he's hiring? Who, who are we blaming here for that? Yes, Tom Herman deserves criticism. Don't get me wrong, one bit. Uh, but when you have a system that has been flawed or broken and the carousel door of coaches between Mac Brown, Charlie Strong, now Tom Herman, that's where you're starting to see where the issue lies and that they're ha- Tom Herman is having to overcome, right? So that puts them at a, a critical disadvantage uh, when you see those things and, and you see those things that are happening year after year. So when top talent is available in your state, they're going elsewhere. Ohio State has done a fantastic job of taking Texas kids. Alabama goes after Texas kids. Auburn, everybody likes to come to Texas and get the kids. So where Texas used to be taking all of that talent, um, I know you've looked at the numbers as far as how much of that talent is Texas and how much is outside of there. And, And so you see those things, and that's where it really starts to hurt. So if I had to say blame-wise, 
I mean, right now, obviously, it's going to be, I'm going to say, Tom Herman deserves some blame because obviously he's the man in charge. But uh, like I said, this this goes back and, and, and even in the Mac Brown end of his era. So, you know, it's just a culmination of things that's kind of just been a, a snowball effect as it moves forward. Yeah, let's get into some of those numbers that you mentioned. Last week, I broke down some numbers on Texas's in-state talent really plummeting uh, over the last seven, eight, nine years, going from 95 or 94%, 95% of their roster filled by in-state players back 10 years ago to just 75% last year. And as you're fully aware, in-state signees have also plummeted until that 2020 class, 2021 also looking good in terms of getting those top 10 players are the expectations still that Texas needs to be landing these top 10 guys, you know, these these, these four-star, five-star guys from in-state, or has it just reached a point where they're really only expected to land one, two, three of these top 10 guys, and you're going to lose Jeffrey Okuda to Ohio State. You're going to lose Miles Garrett to Texas A&M. You're going to lose guys. Where are the expectations right now? Uh, the expectation has always been the same. It's to sign Texas players. Tom Herman knows that. Uh, he's made an emphasis about it. Uh, obviously, the, they go and they look at these other states and as well to try to get top-tier talent to come to Texas. But at the same time, he knows that they have to win their state uh, in order for them to succeed. So, you know, it's definitely something that they're aware of and something that they've been very cognizant of and they have very much put an emphasis on. Um, it's just a matter of and – and we all know this when it comes to recruiting the kids. You know, When you – do well on the football field that's you know players are more apt to come play for you uh, you know so those are the things that they have to do uh, you know for a while Baylor was taking some of their guys and and you know and and so that they've got to find a way to get those guys back to Texas and they've really got to do a good job of winning those like you said those four five star guys um, you know recently they they got Alfred Collins five star. Um, you know, they have Tavion Sanders, who's in the upcoming class, who's a five-star. So getting more of those guys will help, and it also helps with, you know, with the a lot of these kids have relationships with these kids, so that only will benefit them. And I, and I know kids like Jalen Milrow, who's going to be in that next class, he, he's recruiting heavily. So, you know, it, it, it takes getting a couple of those guys, and hopefully those guys help you recruit and bring some of the, you know, players that they played with, played against, some of their friends. And I think that's really what it's going to take is getting those guys like that. Looking at the the bigger picture, widening the lens here a little bit on Tom Herman, what's the feeling around Tom Herman right now? I mean, do people, can they look at the 2020 class, look at 2021 and say, okay, we're heading the right direction? Or is there still serious concern that he can really get them over the hump and, you know, get them to the 11-1 and regular season this year? You know, I think the, the big thing is without disaster, I don't, I don't think he's feeling any pressure right now. Obviously, he just changed out his staff. Uh, Chris Del Conte, the account, the athletic director, said you get one shot at this. Uh, I, I don't think that there's a lot of pressure, but if he fails to perform in 2020, I think that seat's going to get real hot. And so the recruiting has been good. I mean, since Tom Herman has been there, it's, it's going to be the, you know, he's had top 10 classes almost every year. So when you look at it, it's just all of the development. And I think bringing in a, a, a Chris Ash, you know, a guy who, you know, he's worked with players like J.J. Watt, you know, or T.J. Watt. And, and, you know, he's worked with those kind of guys. So it's like 
we need them. He needs to take those experiences and use that on a, a Joseph Asai. Um, you know, and Mike Yurcich, you know, he's worked with offenses and, and, you know, most recently was with Ohio State. So if they can take some of those experiences, apply them to Texas, I think that will really benefit them. And hopefully we'll see more of what we expect of Texas football. But on the subject of, of is Texas back, you know, we've had they have this conversation every year, every single year. And I, I think personally that those expectation levels of Texas back are a little high. And, and the reason I say that is how often do you see a school post an entire decade where they do nothing but win double digit wins every single year? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think the expectation level of maybe some of the people on the outside is a little bit high, but as far as what's going on inside, uh, I don't think that Tom Herman's really under that amount of pressure that that perception is. Where would that Where would that start? I mean, if Tom Herman goes eleven and one, regardless of what happens in the Big Twelve championship game, his job security is pretty damn good. Maybe we even see an extension. If he doesn't, like, what is that? I don't even want to say hot seat because that seems unrealistic, but what's that pressure line for him? Like, what's the line for Texas to start saying, hey, we we might need to look at, you know, what's his buyout? Can we get the money together? Again, not even saying that he's gone, but at what point are we and is Texas having the conversation about, is Tom Herman the right guy for them? If he has another seven to eight win season. So you don't think it's lower than that? You think seven to eight would get the conversation started? Oh, I definitely think that that's the high end of it. Um, I think anything less than that, they're going to start the conversation, obviously. Um, but, you know, if, if he comes out and he doesn't, you know, go six and six, seven and five, uh, I really think they really start going, okay, is he the guy? Um, you know, this is his fourth year. A lot of, you know, I mean, Charlie Strong didn't even get a fourth year. So, you know, the, the expectation levels are up there. And obviously you could say, well, Charlie Strong didn't have any winning seasons. Um, we had, you know, one year decent, but, um, but like I said, the expectation level, I mean, he goes 10 and four, he beats Georgia in 2018. Last year he goes, you know, seven and five before the bowl game. So I think another seven and five year, and especially with all the changes that they made, uh, there's going to be a lot of conversations going on. I know you get into this a little bit. What do you personally think of Tom Herman? If you're, if you're saying best case scenario, you're super optimistic that they could go 11 and one. Does that mean you're fully on board with Tom Herman? What is your personal opinion of him and his fit there? Yeah, you know, I, I like Tom Herman. Uh, I think he does a great job, you know, recruiting-wise. Um, you know, he does a good job with with keeping these guys focused. I think a lot of what his biggest problems early on was he needed to be more of that walk-around head coach, CEO style, um, not being so focused on the offense because, obviously, as a head coach, you have so much more to do than just one side of the football uh, but, uh, you know, I like him. I think he's a good coach. Uh, do I think that he has what it takes to get them over the top? I don't know. Cause I see what he was able to do at Houston and it's just kind of a, it's kind of a head scratch. Cause you're like, okay, you can win 10, 11 games consistently at Houston. I, I don't understand why you can't do that in Texas with better talent. I know we're kind of we're kind of getting down a rabbit hole here, but I mean, if that guy, let's say they go seven and five here and then we start having that conversation, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. Yeah, you can fire a guy, but then, you know, who are you going to hire? Who who can you bring in that you're you're certain will do a much better job? And again, we're going very far down a speculative rabbit hole here, but who who is that guy where 
you can fire Tom Herman. I don't know the buyout off the top of my head. Maybe you do. And then you can pay that buyout, bring in a new staff and say, God, we feel so much better about our program today than we did yesterday. And see, that's that's the big question is, you know, fans and, you know, I've had this conversation with several fans and they're like, well, I don't you know, I don't really like Tom Herman. And that's always my go to is, uh, all right, so what's next? What's the plan? And honestly, I don't have the, the answer to that right now. I haven't really dove into it um, as far as, you know, what coaches they could look at. But um, I don't think that is the right move. I, I think you got to continue with the continuity. So. You're really hoping that Tom Herman has that 9-10, 11-win season, so we're not having that conversation, um, you know, in just a shoot in just a short few months. Yeah, Texas opens the season, and what you said could have been the Charlie Strong Bowl, Week One, September 5th in Austin, South Florida, LSU. A week later, that's Patrick Khan of Longhorns Wire. Listen to him on the Lockdown Longhorns podcast and his Third Down Conversion podcast on Twitter at Pat Sports Guy. Hey, Patrick, thanks for the insight. Uh, Have a good rest of the week, and hopefully we can have you back on in August. I'm looking forward to it, man.